You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Hello, listeners. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Holidays. It's that season, and we have a special episode for you today where we're going to discuss some of the wish list things in our Christmas list of Santa, which would increase the U.S. and other military's capabilities. But we'll get into that. Today's guest on the podcast are my dear friends, which you already know, but I'll introduce them. Major Jason Giroux is an infantry officer with the Royal Canadian Regiment and is currently with the Canadian Army Doctrine and Training Center. Mr. Stuart Lyle is an urban operations research lead for the UK-based Defense Science and Technology Laboratory, DSTL. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know that both these individuals, both these scholars are a part of the urban warfare expertise that is actually small in the world, and it's a great honor to have you both on the podcast. Okay, so we're going to talk about something that we published last last week, yeah, I think when this airs, which is something that we do at the Modern War Institute. We've actually done a podcast before on this, but every at the end of each year, we look at basically our research, uh, what's going on in the world, and we put together, whether you are a fan of the capabilities paradigm of dot mil PF, which is a, a U.S. joint operations paradigm to work at like capabilities or, or you have others since you know this is a a multinational podcast uh, we have representation with Stuart and the UK based military and Jason with the Canadian military but you know we're talking about capabilities ideals initiatives capabilities stuff that that is on my wish list and on Jason and Stu's that we put together at the end of each year and say these things aren't there. If they were there, it would help militaries around the world prepare for what I say, and I'm sure uh, Stu and Jason will agree, is that not just the future of warfare, it's the present of warfare, where wars are determined, decisive battles, where war occurs in dense urban populated areas. So I want this to be a you know an easygoing, fun listen. Uh, about capabilities, but these are, are real capabilities that aren't out there that would significantly increase. If you want, go back and look at our previous either articles or podcasts on Christmas wish list and see there might be some repeats because you know Santa still hasn't brought them to me. So I thought we'd we'd start uh, Stu with you uh, on the first item. But oh, sorry. If the listeners want to go and actually read the article, the article published at the Modern War Institute is called the 2023 Urban Warfare Experts. Since everybody on this podcast I view as an expert or definitely a lifelong learner, or student of the topic of urban warfare, and there's not many of us out there, which is you know it's a little bit of job security, but. The article is called The 2023 Urban Warfare Experts Christmas Wish List. Over to you, Stu. Thanks, John. And you're right. It is it is a small community of people who have sort of dedicated themselves to studying urban warfare. And I think that kind of links to my first uh, item on the wish list, which is we want to try and get people up 
beyond thinking of urban as a special environment uh, you you mentioned that it's the present and the future i actually look back and try and show that actually it's also been the, very heavily into the past of how we've operated and yet people still today try and consider urban as a as a special environment um that sort of sits off on, on a flank somewhere and we we think about it when we have to and it gets lumped in with things like jungle and mountain and arctic uh, and desert and that sort of thing and I'm trying to get through to people. It's like, well, no, actually, this actually tends to be the, one of the most common environments that we operate in. It is a universal environment in which we operate. You can go to a, a hot, sandy place or you can go to a cold, mountainous place and you're going to find urban bits uh, or bits of urban area there. And we have examples linked to in the article from your case studies that you've written up of examples of exactly that urban areas happening within what would be classed as regions within those special environments. So we kind of need to get out of this mindset of seeing it as kind of this bespoke thing that we kind of deal with when we need to. But until that point, let's just ignore. And that kind of breeds people's attitudes of, well, we could just bypass and avoid or people are intimidated by it. So therefore, they don't want to try and engage with the subject. And we see this then reflected in military training where most of the training focuses on rural operations, where you're training in Alberta or Fort Benning. Um, it's all rural training. And then you culminate with sort of the final exercise happens to be in an urban area. And it's almost kind of putting urban on a pedestal of kind of this is the most complicated thing. Let's tackle it when we have to, but not before. But I want to try and sort of break that mentality and get people to think about this as a universal environment and therefore should be a foundation of training and saying, well, actually, we like to say that we train for what's the hardest and then we can adjust downwards. That's why we train and we equip for war fighting and we can adjust down to things like counterinsurgency. So let's train for urban, um, certainly at sort of the lower tactical levels of platoon company level, um, and then really sort of bed that in because actually some of the hardest things down there are command and control at that lowest tactical level. So if you can nail that at, uh, in the urban environment, then it should be easier in the rural environment. So yeah, let's stop treating our urban as, as a special environment and treat it as it is, which is a universal environment and one of the most common ones that we operate in and treat it accordingly. Yeah, I agree. And because it's my podcast, I get to make comments about everybody else's items. Jason probably will love that. I agree. And actually in the US military, it's, it's that's the designation that it's a special environment. So what is the not special for us because of, you know, just for many reasons, a cultural institutional access to training areas that the actual not special is wooded areas, right? So not even open areas, but I a hundred percent agree with you. And that's a, the way you articulated it in the article and, and just now so important that it should be the starting line, but not the finish line of complexity because it's, you know, that's what history teaches us and definitely what the present teaches us. But so my item, so the, the first item on the John Spencer, you know, we all had three items, right? So we all got three. So mine is a U.S. DOD line item. Well, I'm sorry that it's very focused on the U U.S., but I think that's a starting point for the Urban Operations Planner course. Again, if you listen to the podcast, you can go back and you know that I am a part of the California State Guard as the director of urban warfare training for the 40th infantry division because the leadership specifically brigadier general rob woolridge agrees with Stu that the urban operations should be the the starting point and that we're not prepared as much as we could be so we created in conjunction with with Stu and uh, especially jason and every, my friend jacob stoyle we all worked together with the 40th infantry division to create a course to teach division and brigade staffs how to plan for urban operations because 
many urban battles can be lost in even planning them. And there is no other course. It's the only one in the world specifically only prepares staff for urban operations, large-scale combat urban operations, offense and defense. We had to narrow it down. So we teach a one-week course. The next one is in August of 2024. So look out for that. But unfortunately, we've been doing it for three years. And again, you can read the articles in the podcast about it at the Modern War Institute. But each year, the 40th Infantry Division staff in General Woolridge you know, has to find funding. He has to go to different places to bring it together because it still hasn't been solidified as a as a funded project, a funded course, when it's the only one and the values are immense. Uh, even us, all the personnel that help put it together and that teach at it, all three of us do, we learn so much while teaching the course and, and what it takes to understand it. What are the different variables from and from fires to intelligence to wargaming? That's for you, Stu. All of it. Thank you. The value of it and the return on investment are massive. It's a one-week course. The funding for it would be a a very drop in the bucket of the training peg or whatever it is. But my wish is that it would get a line item, which would give it a enduring, consistent, dependable funding source that the course would be solidified and then much more things could come. Over to you, Jason. Thanks, John. So once again, just like our, our 2021 Christmas wish list podcast, you know, we have an American urban operations researcher and writer, and we have a Canadian urban warfare historian and an Irish urban operations defense scientist, and we're all very passionate students on this particular subject. So because the three of us approach urban operations from these different angles and experiences and contexts, we hope to give you another good show. So John, thanks again for having me back on the show. And, and Stu, I love hearing your salty Irish accent wax on about urban operations. So I'd like to take John's first wish and expand on it. My first wish, not only do I agree with John that we need the 40th Infantry Division's Urban Operations Planners course fully resourced, but we need more higher level urban operations courses like that particular course all over the world. So to be clear, I'm not discussing the courses that teach the individual skills and the room clearing skills, the hands and feet skills, as we like to say. Every country has those. What we need are the courses that teach urban operations planning tactics and sustainment to senior and junior officers and very senior NCOs who work at the company, battalion, brigade, division levels. We need to have the 40th Infantry Division's course equivalents so that Western militaries are not just relying on the 40th Infantry Division to become knowledgeable about urban operations. So all the Western militaries, the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Spain, Germany, France, need an equivalent course. But what I would like to do is have every one of those courses open to students around the world. Sir Winston Churchill said there's at least one thing worse than fighting with allies, and that is to fight without them. And so by having these courses in every country in NATO and all the Western militaries, not just having them open to their own personnel, but to students from around the world, like the 40th Infantry Division's course, because whenever we go to fight wars in the future, it will be a joint effort, and we'll need to cross-pollinate the knowledge from all of our country's military personnel so that everybody understands how the other countries think when it comes to urban operations. So the cross-training there is particularly important because if we do conduct joint operations, no correction, when when we conduct joint operations, we will be doing it with a number of allied forces and we all have to know how all of the other personnel are thinking and, and what their rules of engagement are and, and how they apply a professional force. 
So now that I've stated that there must be more international urban operations courses that students from around the world can attend, who's going to be attending them? Well, you know, one of the frustrating things that John and Stu and I have to deal with is this damned belief that that urban operations is just an army problem or within the army, it's just an infantry problem, but that's wrong, wrong, wrong. We need all of the branches and all the trades involved in this fight. And it's been demonstrated throughout urban warfare history that if you just use infantry, you're going to lose. So these courses also need to be expanded so that there are army, navy, air force, marines, special forces, but also the specialized communities, such as the the military lawyers from the judge advocate generals, the legal advisors, the policy advisors, politicians, and even non-government organizations can send students on these courses. So yes, you have all the combat arms like infantry, armor, artillery, engineers, but all these other specialized communities and the logisticians, electrical, mechanical engineers, medical, intelligence signals, military police officers, civil military operators, info ops, information operations personnel, Navy divers, Navy watercraft operators, helicopter and fighter jet pilots. You know, every urban warfare battle in history that's been successful has used a combination of all of these. Uh, Ortona, Aachen, Seoul, Battle Huey, Fallujah, Marui, all used combined arms and all of the branches. And that's why all of these courses must be taught around the world in various countries with all of these, both military and and civilian personnel. And that's my point one, John. Over to you, Stu. Okay, so almost kind of building on what Jason said there, one of the things that that I would like to see is the creation of a NATO Urban Operations Center of Excellence, actually sort of accredited by NATO, run by NATO, and open to uh, all NATO um, members and partners. And part of that's driven to the fact that, you know, yes, I've just said that I don't want urban to be treated as a special environment, but there are unique features to it that we need to understand. And we want to try and cohere doctrine across the alliance. We want to cohere lessons learned from examples that happen around the world. Uh, and have that feed in across uh, of all the all the partner nations. NATO actually has a number of centers of excellence. They've got 29 centers of excellence that focus on a raft of different things across the joint spectrum. But in terms of the sort of things like counter IED, mountain warfare, you've got air operations, you've got all these uh, areas where NATO has decided that these things are important enough for us to have a center of excellence to then teach uh, and, and standardize the understanding of those types of operations or those types of environments. They haven't got one for urban operations. So while we've got some countries that are leading the charge and trying to build physical training estates, you've got Germans or the French trying to build those sorts of things. You've got um, various nations that are doing small areas uh, where they they will they will specialize in. And we haven't got a sort of NATO coherent approach uh, to urban operations outside of getting together every now and then and reaffirming doctrine. So I'd like to see NATO actually create a center of excellence specific to urban operations that will drive doctrinal development across the alliance, uh, influencing individual sovereign doctrine, will set standards for NATO training so that whenever we do joint combined exercises, uh, we're all held to the same standards. We're ensuring that we're all employing the same tactics and doctrine and also then driving research as well. So a lot of things these centers of excellence do is they also then start to try and understand their particular subject area and lead some of the research in that. So I'd like to see, again, you know, being an analyst, I'm on my la- on the last list back uh, two years ago, research was was one of my other things. So I'm kind of sneaking that one in here onto this list too, because as John said, hasn't necessarily you know, Santa hasn't delivered yet. So if we can drive that one in there as well, then a NATO center of excellence I think would be a good starting point for coherence of these things across the alliance. Yeah. No, and I, if you look back at uh, the creation of the urban operations planner, of course, the intention was to to replicate U.S. based models for. And the evolution of that being one of the many courses taught at a, a center, 
such as an urban operations center. Uh, I love the idea of a NATO center. And actually, that whole list you read of NATO centers of excellence that exist for everything from Cyberni to peacekeeping. Uh, actually, in the U.S. military, we have a similar list of joint centers for peacekeeping and other aspects. Matter of fact, in 2021, the U.S. military decided Arctic was of considerable importance. So the Arctic has a Center for Arctic Security Studies. We have a 11th Airborne Division focused on Arctic. We even have in the in the Pentagon a Department for Arctic and Global Reliance Office stood up recently, an Arctic Security Studies program. All that people viewed as important, and I agree they're important, but you know how many we have for urban? Zero. There's not a single urban operations office in the joint that's only dedicated to urban operations. And despite the things that we see going on around in the world, right now, as we're speaking, urban is understudied, let alone under-resourced. It's understudied. And so I really love that one, Stu. So over to me, my next one that I, you know, you had to make tough decisions, just like my kids. Like, hey, you only get a couple things on your list this year and Santa's not going to bring everything. So for me, it's drones, cheap, expendable drones given all the way down to the squad level. Because I believe, and I think other people do, but the urban environment is full of threats and challenges. Whether you go back to my eight rules of urban warfare article, in, if you're attacking, but also in defending, is that you need these drones to deal with many of those challenges from reconnaissance to securing yourself and preventing ambushes to striking at the enemy around the corner or down the street that where your munitions can't get to, or even to help, as we've seen, as in the many case studies that me and Jason write and publish at the Modern War Institute, selfless plug, that you can read about uh, to protect civilians because no matter what is done in all the requirements, which are being talked about a lot in the world right now, all the requirements to protect civilians and the legal obligations and the moral obligations, how hard that is to do in urban environments, no matter what you do historically, some amount of civilians are always present. In my opinion, drones with those full motion video would help in all of those warfighting requirements, legal obligations. But the problem is that most militaries, I won't name any of them, are still relying on very expensive, non-expendable to the point where I, in combat, in urban environments, and all the way back, a long time ago, I'm dating myself, 2008, I wouldn't put those drones up because if they went down, it was a massive event. I need drones that are expendable as bullets, as an ammunition, or at least as expendable as an artillery round. So I want drones that are expendable, hardened against cyber threats, of course. I'm not talking about just civilian off-the-shelf that can be hacked into and all the challenges of that. And I want them all to be under $1,000. I know that's a big ask. And I want them all the way down to the squad, the lowest fighting formation, having multiple drones for all the functions of the complexity of the urban environment, which I still stand to as the most complex fighting environment you could ever send a soldier into. And he needs lots of drones. And at this point, we're at the point where the enemy has more than us. And it's a challenge, but that's a, a really big thing on my list. So over to you, Jason. Cool. Thanks, John. All right. My second wish is to have more and better 
sub-training training areas. I'm going to endear ourselves to our good friends, Dr. Daphne Richman Barak, and who's in Israel, and, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Craig, who's a Royal Engineer with the British Army. And uh, if you go on X or Twitter or whatever it's called this time, at Barak Richmond and at Sapper Geologist or Daphne and, and Drew's uh, profile titles, I'll endear myself to them because the second wish is to have more and better sub-training training areas. Current events are certainly demonstrating the need to have more and better subterranean training areas. And I suggest that the current subterranean areas are few and far between, and they're severely lacking in variety and number. So John and I were down in Los Angeles at a NATO urban operations conference in September, 2020, and we were able to go to the United States Marine Corps base at 29 Palms and visit the military operations and urban train site. And then when John, Stu and I were instructing on the 40th Infantry Division's Urban Operations Planners Course in Los Angeles. We were able to travel to the United States Army base at Fort Irwin and visit the Razish training site. And both of the facilities, even though they're very sizable on the surface with hundreds of buildings, a fake waterway that goes through, and uh, the subterranean systems, though, were, were severely lacking and, and limited to small sewer tunnels and and not a lot of them at that. I can tell you that within the Canadian Armed Forces, none of our urban operations training sites have any subterranean at all. So I'm I'm wondering when it comes to the British and the Americans who've done a little more on this, like Stu, are there any decent British subterranean training areas that the British Army uses? Yeah, so in in the majority of our specifically urban training sites, there isn't a huge representation of subterranean sort of within those. There's a couple of tunnels here and there between a couple of buildings and the like. But nothing, nothing significant at the urban training sites. However, we are lucky in that we've got a massive, and I do mean massive, subterranean training facility at some a place called Corsham Mines. And we're talking; this is, these are dozens of kilometers worth of tunnels. Some of them that are big enough that you can drive vehicles through. And some of them are much more narrow. And what effectively, you know, there's there's areas that look like uh, even office complexes underground. There's all the complex plant machinery to run all the air filtration systems and pumping facilities and stuff so you've got some really complex structures to try and clear under there i was very fortunate i got to go uh, and visit that in october and see it being used and yeah there's a good variety of, of things in there and like i said the, the scale of it is ginormous so we have that facility now every training facility has its own restrictions and what you can and can't do and that sort of thing as well so there are pros and cons to it even with the scale but yeah that's one where we have quite a good single facility for Okay, so John, when it comes to American, well, John, you've been all over the world. So, I mean, are there any training areas that you've been to, sub-training training areas that you've been to that, that you've been really impressed with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I have that dream job. Jealous. <laughs> In Israel, of course, the IDF have, bar none, hands down, the most impressive sub-training training environments, both with the elite Yalom unit, which I was able to visit their site, and also at their national training site, which is their basically their version of the combat training center like us at Tel Azim. Even there, the subterranean underneath the buildings are so massive and unique and impressive that I'm I'm really jealous of it because it isn't just about having a subterranean site to go visit. Because even in the United States, yeah, we have the Muscatuck Urban Training Center, which is amazing, over a mile sub T, a real sub T. But they're very limited. The I would want, I'm not changing your list. You can have whatever you want, Jason. I would want them integrated with the urban warfare training site because that's the point. Is that they, like we're seeing in the world is that they're in, in the urban, there is a sub-T environment. And if it's not um, built for purpose, it's already there. 
So at, at most of the urban training sites for the U.S. military, like you mentioned at Range 29 for the Marine Corps, they have an above-ground sub-T trainer that's almost separate than the urban. And, and they may have a tunnel that connects a few buildings, but it's not a, you know, it's not a, in, a vital part of the urban and the challenge of accomplishing the military mission. And like Rajesh, the National Training Center, that, which the 40th Infantry Div- Division includes part of the course, you know, it's not even used most of the time because of how much complexity it adds to the environment. And so, yeah, Israel's are, 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 are amazing, but of course of their, the threat that they face so deliberately, but they've really invested in, in some massive underground warfare training sites, but yeah. Okay. So we need to take these sites that Stu and John have visited and we need to expand on them to make complex subterranean facilities. So I'm talking like Stu mentioned, with the British one, like subway tunnels and maintenance tunnels and sewer tunnels, pedestrian tunnels, homemade tunnels, uh, tunnels you have to crawl through, subterranean systems that are dark, that smell bad, well, not dangerously bad, but uh, with other special effects to replicate the, replicate the dangers of subterranean warfare. We need to build them bigger and better and integrate them, like John said, into the urban operators training sites. And we need to build them safe, obviously. The challenges with that, of course, is that you need to spend a lot of a large amount of money to build them and such an extensive system would probably go into the tens of millions of dollars and some militaries may find that hard to swallow or what you can do is you can find existing disused subtraining systems in cities that can be utilized for training purposes so as an example uh, the 48th highlanders are an army reserve unit up here in toronto canada and for the last three years and they're doing it again this year uh, they have, they've run exercise Urban Falcon, where um, it's a joint exercise in which they invite me down to teach and I take the officers and senior NCOs and do an offensive and defensive tactical exercise without troops. And then they take the sergeants and below into a subway system that's uh, part of the Toronto Transit Commission. It's a disused part of the subway system in which they can do force on force training with the simunition paintball guns. So while I'm taking the officers and the senior NCOs around Toronto um, to do the toot and we integrating that subtraining system into it, we have the junior soldiers learning how to do force on force training within that same subtraining system. And so that's an absolutely fantastic exercise. And like I said, they're inviting me back again this March of 2024 to do it. So if you can, if a military out there can find a city that has a subterranean systems that's not being used, then take advantage of that and use it like the 40th Highlanders have. So I'll slip back into my urban warfare historian role. So Dr. Uh, Rishman Barak and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Craig, and of course, John have done a number of podcasts. Uh, John's done two with uh, Daphne and he's done one with Sergeant Major Joe Vega. And John's also done a number of articles, including his own subterranean wish list. That include resources on subtraining warfare. Stu has included a subtraining section in the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory's Future Cities Report, which is right in his biography on the article there. Um, so the resources are out there. We just need bigger and better and integrated subtraining training systems and, and areas that have a variety of subtraining types so that we can properly train our soldiers, sailors, aviators, Marines, and special operations personnel. And John, that's my second point. Great. Thanks, Jason. I like how many times you mentioned me, but over to Stu. Okay, so um, so John's mentioned uh, drones. I'm going to sort of jump slightly higher up on this and say, well, actually, what I'd, I'd like to see is I'd like to see 
the characteristics and, uh, and the challenges of operating in an urban environment actually factoring into the design uh, and the requirement setting for equipment procurement um, and, and military equipment in general. Uh, this is something that we see at DSTL. We we are providing the analysis for um, the British Army's procurement um, ideas. And one of the things that we end up doing is we test any uh, sort of larger platforms that we're going to be procuring. We have to test them across a range of different operating environments through some of our modeling and simulation. And we always put it through an urban one. And, you know, one of the things that is always highlighted is the fact that, you know, some of the some of the inherent challenges of operating in that sort of dense, cluttered environment with elevation and depression angles and all that sort of stuff um, doesn't really get factored into uh, the design of the actual platforms themselves and the initial requirement setting. That's something that we've highlighted before, not necessarily seeing it. Uh, one of the things that's slightly galling is you see a lot of the, uh, when you see any of the company, the large sort of defense primes showing off one of their new vehicles, invariably they show it operating in an urban environment. And then, you know, at the same time, there's me at the background going, well, hang on a second. Um, you know, where where was the design features uh, specific for operating in that environment? Um, so there's a lot of things, that, you know, a lot of companies could do. Uh, they could change that. A lot of things that um, military people who are asking or setting the requirements for vehicles could do. Um, which would factor in some of the unique characteristics of operating in the urban environment. And that doesn't tend to happen. And we've seen this and how this actually impacts on, on operations as well. So uh, we link it in the article, but things like, you know, the, uh, the U.S. Army having to um, rapidly procure the Tusk system, the uh, tank urban uh, survival kits for the M1 Abrams tank when they were operating in places like Baghdad because they were suddenly realized that actually some of the limitation or some of the challenges um, of, of operating in that environment needed to be needed to be addressed. So we're having to do this on operations at pace um, when really we could factor this in earlier on in the procurement cycle. Uh, similarly, when you drop down to even the lowest level, the, the very micro-tactical level, even things like ladders, um, sledgehammers, and your very basic breaching equipment, these are all seen as specialist equipment within the military uh, in a way that I personally don't think they should be. Um, and they're very much sort of held at a higher level. People have to then bid for them if they're going to do an urban exercise. Um, so even just getting access to these very basic um, urban mobility um, equipment for training, let alone, you know, so you know, obviously when you go on operations, you tend to get it, but to get it to get it in training when you actually need to become familiar with the developing your unit, um, tactics, techniques, and procedures, that tends to be quite a struggle for units. So it tends to not happen, um, or people are trying to sort of find sort of jury-rigged ways in which they can do it. Um, so I'd like to see um, a a focus on urban equipment or the specific characteristics of operating in an urban environment actually represented in the equipment programs and the requirement setting that that uh, that militaries are putting in. Well, thanks, Stu, and I 100% agree. Um, and I know it's above my drones, but I have small wishes. I'm like my kids. I'm like, I'll give you a couple of little things and then, you know, I'll ask for a cat, which it ain't, it ain't happening, just so you know. Uh, that's what my daughter did. She asked for a cat and then she listed, she listed cat and then she's like cat food, cat litter, like her whole list is. So that's what reminded me of, of your, you know, my drone and you, you want the, you want the cat, but I, I'll take the, I got it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So my next uh, and last and final, unfortunately, of of my three wishes uh, for my wishmas, Chris, for my Christmas list, is a heavy duty, remote capable, armored bulldozer. 
um, because of the fact that the bulldozer has historically and today uh, still remains a vital tool when attacking an enemy-held city, a contested urban environment, a non-permissive environment. The bulldozer has, which is crazy, and I can actually say with, with confidence that the bulldozer reduces collateral damage. It clears complex obstacles that defenders put in place. It creates logistical and access of advance and you know just new routes that the enemy held city or the defender doesn't want you to take because a good defender is going to prepare the battlefield and, and try to route the enemy, their enemy, the attacker into their areas of operation. But the bulldozer historically in recent battles, as in battles happening right now, uh, as in battle of Mosul, as in uh, battle of the Fallujah, all of them, the bulldozer be is a champion because of the fact that it can clear those routes and really, if you could look back at my eight rules of urban warfare, when the defender has an advantage, Stu, um, an initial advantage is that the defender gets to oftentimes pick the, the first shot and you have to walk down that street if you're the attacker and like take a punch to the face. Then you know where the enemy is on that street, but the bulldozer can take that first blow and there are militaries that have them uniquely like Israel because of their problem sets that a heavy bulldozer, the D9, which has a nickname I won't say, but the D9, which I got to drive uh, in 2021, it's like a three-story heavy-duty bulldozer armorized and they have a remote capable, but it has shown in their wars as a vital part of the combined arms team to be able to clear those explosives, to clear those routes, to take the first shot. Um, but the U.S. military doesn't. Actually, we actually borrowed the D-9 on a couple operations, and there's some issues with weight and everything, but I, on my wish list, I would want the a heavy armored bulldozer as part of the MTO of military units prepared for this environment because it becomes critical and if you don't have it here's why i say uniquely that the bulldozer reduces collateral damage because if when you don't have a bulldozer you turn to other tools like explosive force like your aerial delivery of things the bulldozer is unique on changing the the tactics at that moment it's not a cure-all of course but i would really love to see it a a regular part of military formations to have this on hand not uh, limited and on call from other places around the world, but on hand, a part of, especially like the armor formations and part of their MTO equipment. So over to you, Jason. Oh, thanks, John. <clears throat> you have to give me some leeway here. So uh, both of my grandfathers participated in the Second World War. That's the war where the defenders were either losing or lost, John. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, both my grandfathers participated in the Second World War. So my paternal grandfather was in the Royal Canadian Navy. My maternal grandfather was a U.S. Marine. So when I was six years old, I became interested in those that particular conflict because I wanted to know what my grandfathers went through. And I've been a passionate student of military history ever since. And I've been in the Canadian Armed Forces for a little over 28 years now. And for the past 20 years, I've been lucky to have been at the right place at the right time with units who involved me in or allowed me to teach urban operations 
and, and urban warfare history. So due to my passion for military history, I've become rather passionate about urban warfare history. So this next wish should not be a surprise to any of you then. My third and final wish, better urban representation in professional reading. If I could have every officer and every senior NCO in all of the branches and trades, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Special Forces, not just the combat arms, but all those other trades I mentioned earlier for the for the international urban operations courses, the logisticians and the military police and signalers and medical, etc., and all the policy advisors and politicians and non-government organizations to be students, please, I recommend read a book or, because it's the 21st century, listen to podcasts on any urban operations subject on an annual basis. No book reports, no presentations or anything like that afterwards. Just read a book or listen to a podcast on any urban operations topic of their choosing every year. As Brigadier General Robert Woldridge, the Deputy Commander of the 40th Infantry Division, and the gentleman who was really the driving force behind the Urban Operations Planners course has, a, has on his ex-profile, leaders are readers. So I'll once again slip back into my urban warfare historian role. So you know, General James Mattis... From his book, Call Sign Chaos, we have been fighting on this planet for 10,000 years. It would be idiotic and unethical to not take advantage of such accumulated experiences. If you haven't read hundreds of books, you're functionally illiterate and you will be incompetent because your personal experiences alone aren't broad enough to sustain you. Any commander who claims he is too busy to read is going to fill body bags with his troops as he learns the hard way. The consequences of incompetence in battle are final. And history teaches us that we face nothing new under the sun. Now, I'm not suggesting you have to read historical case studies. Some people, even some people in the military, don't like military history. And there's even some that don't like military historians. That's fine. So pick up a book or read an article or listen to one of John's podcasts on what your branch or trade does in urban warfare. It's challenges, some of the mitigations too, so that God forbid you find yourself fighting in a city. You already have some knowledge about the subject. Urban warfare isn't new. Stu's right, folks. It's not special. It's been around for decades and arguably even centuries. And there are hundreds of resources out there, books, articles, journals, and podcasts that discuss the challenges and topics of urban operations. So John, Stu, and I argue that urban operations is the warfare of the present and of the future. And we say that because the world is rapidly urbanizing. Depending on the resources you read, it's anywhere from 50 to 65% of the world is currently urbanized. And by the time the next generation of children grows up to become adults, that could be anywhere from 75 to 85% of the world is largely urbanizing. So we're not suggesting that militaries have to become 100% focused on urban operations and training. That's not realistic. Our militaries have to be prepared to fight in any environment, whether it's jungle, mountain, rural, Arctic, or urban. But given the trends, given the trends and the rapid urbanization of the world, the fact that our enemies know that we're challenged in this in, in the urban environment, that urban warfare has its own complexities and challenges, the current conflicts in both Ukraine and Gaza are, are certainly examples where it demonstrates our militaries have to become smarter on urban operations and the start state is reading up and or listening up on the subject. And that's my third point, John. Well, thanks, Jason. And since this is my podcast, I have a book recommendation for, I know you've read it. You, you were a vital part of its development and couldn't happen without you. But my book with Colonel Retired Liam Collins, Understanding Urban Warfare, might be a place you could start. I'm just saying, but uh, I appreciate you so Unfortunately, that's the end, right? We could keep going with things that aren't in all of our militaries that would be very useful to prepare 
all formations and staffs and leaders for, and I will be as bold to say the, the combat they will face, which will be Irvin. But um, you can listen to the other podcast to hear me say that over and over again. I want to, again, tell the audience, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. I hope it is full of joy and happiness. And I will turn it over to my brothers in Urban Warfare Arms. And thank you again for you guys for your time to put together this list, both for the article and now for this podcast. Yeah, thanks, John. This is my fourth Urban Warfare Project podcast. So thank you again for having me back. Jason, thanks for rubbing it in. It's only my third, but thank you. <laughs> no, thanks, John. Thanks for hosting us. And Jason, always a pleasure. So yeah, I, I wish you a happy Christmas or happy Hanukkah, whoever, uh, whoever is listening. Um, and yeah, we have made some good strides in 2023 in trying to get militaries to take this subject more seriously, driven by real world events uh, as well, unfortunately. But yeah, hopefully we'll see more in 2024. Happy holidays, everybody. Thanks. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.